Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. I'm excited today on our PCA One-on-One Interviews podcast to be interviewing gymnast Bart Connor. Um, Bart is a longtime supporter of Positive Coaching Alliance and uh, uh, just a great person. He was a two-time Olympian in 1976-1984 Olympics and won two gold medals in 1984. He won multiple uh, NCAA National World Championships. Um, he attended the University of Oklahoma, uh, where he earned 14 NCAA All-American honors. Uh, active in a whole bunch of um, nonprofit organizations, including Special Olympics, where, which is where I met Bart when we were both on the board. He currently owns and operates the Bart Connor Gymnastics Academy with his wife, Nadia Komenich, who's also a um, pretty uh, fair gymnast in her time, <laughs> uh, and also a PCA National Advisory Board member. Uh, and among other things, Bart has been the MC of our National Youth Sports Awards um, and did a fabulous job. Bart, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure, Jim. It's uh, so exciting to see uh, the growth of the Positive Coaching Alliance. And uh, so I remember the genesis of this and uh, and you pulling me aside at a Special Olympics board meeting saying you're going to go off and do this. And uh, so uh, all these years later to see what you've accomplished and the impact you've made is, uh, is really thrilling. I, I, I'm sure you feel pretty fulfilled as well. I do, and I, I the getting the support of uh, individuals like you early on was uh, a big, uh, as we say, if you say a big emotional tank filler that uh, helped uh, helped get through the the inevitable setbacks whenever you're trying to start something new. So uh, really appreciate that. Um, let me just say, um, you were one of the first uh, American male gymnasts who had a lot of success internationally. Uh, what was that like? Well, of course, in the 60s and 70s, when I uh, got introduced to gymnastics, the great legends of the sport were from places like Japan and uh, East Germany. Remember there was an East Germany? <laughs> right. uh, and, of course, the former Soviet Union, uh, these had these, uh, you know, juggernaut programs. And uh, so... Um, uh, there were very few competitive gymnasts from the U.S. that made a mark internationally. So we would often go to major international meets, and we'd be relegated to somewhere between you know seventh and tenth place as a team, and and no one would have a real legitimate shot at a medal. And uh, uh, in the uh, late 70s, uh, uh, there were two of us who kind of came along at the same time. One of my competitors and, uh, and dear friends, uh, Kurt Thomas. Um, made a mark for the U.S., becoming the first uh, world champion in uh, men's gymnastics in 1978. And uh, that seemed to be a a watershed moment. So the barriers were broken down, and all of a sudden we all felt like we could contend. And so uh, I was a world champion in 79 as well. And then from that point on, the American men's team was, uh, you know, uh, a serious contender. Uh, And still to this day, you know, if it's the top three teams in the world, it always includes the American men. And, and of course, the U.S. women's program has been dominating for the last decade or so. So the program in the U.S. is very strong. But uh, you're right. I was part of that early uh, round of uh, success back in the late 70s. Uh, thrilled to be a part of it. You know, um, we um, 
we talk about triple impact competitors, people who um, make themselves better, their teammates better, and the game better. Um, did you have any opponents or teammates, either one, that you really admired, that you felt were, uh, were triple impact competitors, making themselves better, teammates better, and the game better, or the sport of gymnastics better? Well, it's interesting because uh, as I came up, you know, and I think you and I have talked about this, there were competitors around me that were more gifted, um, that were stronger, uh, more daring, had better air sense, um, and could learn skills quicker than I. So I, I, there were a lot of guys that I admired for their prowess, you know, in the gym. Um, uh, Kurt Thomas was one of them. There was a young man named Tim Slotta who I grew up with who was, you know, he was just so gifted. I was, you know, in many ways envious. So I was the uh, overachiever type who stayed a little bit longer in the gym and uh, uh, had to work harder to uh, achieve the skills I did. So um, I'm always grateful that I, I had a coach and a, a mom and dad who um, always helped me uh, find my way and, and always feel valued because I was always surrounded by people who were just uh, naturally more gifted, but um, you know, I I've said this often that you know I'm I'm blessed that I had people around me that even though I might have been second place, uh, they never let me feel like I was somehow second best. And uh, so for many years, you know, I was relegated to that you know second or third place on the podium and hoping for first. And uh, so I worked hard at it. And uh, I looked at many gymnasts for many reasons. I, I studied everybody because. Uh, you know, I love the style of the Japanese and the grace and the the polish, and at the same time the class and the and the politeness uh, and the humility of the great champions from Japan. That inspired me a great deal. Um, you know, then I then I saw the daring you know gymnasts from Russia who were you know uh, doing new skills and and reinventing the sport right in front of our face. And so, I mean, I, I saw all. I, I I was really a student of many aspects of our sport. So. And I still am this day, whether it's in sports or whether it's in business. You know, I, I feel like there's a, tons of magic happening all around us. You just got to be, you know, your eyes have to be open to it, and, and, and you have to search for it, and it's there. And uh, so I, I feel like I'm a, uh, the way I grew up and the way I, my philosophy developed this was really a, uh, uh, a composite of all these things that I saw along the way that that inspired me. And to this day, I, you know, uh, I, I'm convinced we're we're surrounded by wonder and magic all the time. It's just are we are we open to it and, and are we uh, accessible to it? And uh, and so I I think I, I called a lot from many people who inspired me. You know, that's um, we, we talk about uh, coaches and actually teammates, too, being noticers, noticing the, the good things that people are doing to help the team and then commenting on it. And I think uh, I love the way you talk about that. You know, we're, we're really uh, we're surrounded by magic all around if we just uh, open our eyes to see it. You know, sometimes people often focus on the, the superstars and the things that they do, but there there is just pure beauty in, in, in excellence, whether it's you know the the landscaper who does just a great job on the grass or whether it's a coach who says the right thing at the right time to a student who needs it i mean we're just surrounded by all this incredible good stuff happening and uh i do believe it's 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 um you you need to be um, be made mindful that there's there's a lot of wonderful things happening and we can learn from all of it if we if we have the mindset 
You, you mentioned you were an overachiever type, um, which you know requires grit and perseverance. Um, what kept you going when you were? Uh, I know you had success at the high school level and success at the college level, but what kept you going internationally when you weren't having initial success? Well, I think uh, I learned early on that um, I loved the process. I loved the process of getting better and the the taste of success you get each day from making that those small incremental improvements. And I think sometimes we're often focused on results, which obviously we're kind of a results-based society, and it does matter. We all try to experience success however we, you know, formulate that. But um, I was also in an environment where um, instead of being overwhelmed by these daunting long-term goals, I was feeling fulfilled and uh, a sense of achievement every day because I could come home from practice uh, with a sense that uh, I I am getting better. I was loving the process. So I knew that day that I did a little bit better on my release move on the high bar. And my, you know, my swing on the rings was technically just a little bit stronger. And so, you know, I, I think in, as a coach and, and even now as a parent, I see so many parallels between good coaching and good parenting. And um, I, uh, I think you, you put an environment where, where a child can – uh, experience success often. It's very intoxicating. And um, so uh, that's the kind of culture and the kind of environment we try to create in our home and, and as well as our business. is. Um, and I think that it comes down to focusing on the process because, you know, if the end result were the only metric that mattered, um, we'll look at it in my sport. If the Olympic gold medal was the only metric that mattered, then one person on the planet will succeed. And that's just not how life is. And so if you can find the daily successes and the daily uh, pleasure in the progress and the, and, and the process, um, you're surrounded by success all the time. And, and as I said, that's intoxicating. And, and you taste it a little bit and you want more. And who knows how far your God-given talents will take you. But if you're in a culture and an environment where uh, you're experiencing and tasting success consistently, um, that's, the, that's the sweet spot to me. What, that's 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 really lovely. That's that's one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of that. that I love it. The intoxication and the, the tasting that daily success. What do you say to people who say that you know if uh, you know kids need to be toughened up and you know yelling at them and learning to fail and uh, how do you how do you address people like that? Well, it's interesting. I. Uh... Nadia and I have an eight-year-old boy. He plays on a youth basketball team, a youth soccer team. He's into drums. He's not so far interested in gymnastics, which is just fine because I don't want him to feel compelled to do gymnastics because we did it, although I think gymnastics is a great foundation for all sports in terms of strength, balance, agility, and things. But, um, you know, I do. It's funny. I find myself on the sidelines at, at, you know, Saturday morning soccer games with parents, and uh, I am mystified by some of the things I hear. And um, uh, and I can understand exactly that juncture in your life, Jim, when you realize that your son and his experience in youth sports uh, could be better. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. It it so much of it is just who I am, and I, it, it's shocking to me some of the things I hear and some of the way I hear parents. Uh, I mean, obviously, we 
we, we don't want uh, we, we want our kids to have a sense of accountability and responsibility and but really the only thing we can really sort of um, uh, focus on is effort and you know the results often there's many factors in the results that beyond our control but we can celebrate effort and um, uh, and, and that, to me, is that is the one thing you have control over. And you know, you, in a sport like mine, where not only uh, uh, are the results, you know, not in your hands, they're in the hands of judges, who in many cases aren't even objective. And so, you know, I learned early on that if I were going to measure my sense of fulfillment from a panel of judges who have subjective considerations, uh, I'm doomed to not have a lot of fun. And uh, so, um, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to build for yourself your, your picture of success and stick to it. And, and, and the one thing you can control is your effort, your enthusiasm, and, and what you bring to the moment and to the experience for you and your teammates. That's the one thing you can control. And, and then, and, and you gotta master that and you gotta own that and you gotta love that. And, um, I really think that if you are too focused on things that are outside of your control, um, I, I wouldn't want to set myself up for that kind of disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Um, Let's talk about the mental game a little bit. One of, you know, uh, a big reason for my starting Positive Coaching Alliance 16 or so years ago was really about performance. I saw kids not performing as well as they could because they were they were so tense. They were getting so much pressure from parents and coaches. Um, and so Positive Coaching Alliance is about help making coaches better coaches, athletes better athletes, parents better sports parents, et cetera. Um, and so the mental game is a big part of that. And I know when you and I talked several years ago, um, when my first uh, my book for athletes came out, Elevating Your Game, about some of the mental game techniques that you used, um, one of them was reframing. And I wonder if you could share that story um, about when you were a gymnast, a high school gymnast in Chicago. Do you remember that? I do, actually. It's funny you remember that because um, I, I like – uh, so many things that you uh, talk about in your books and, and uh, in all of your materials. And I think, you know, obviously uh, reframing, uh, we, we're, we're, we're not, there's a lot of things beyond our control in a sports experience. And um, so we can't manage a lot of that, but what we can do is manage our response to it, as you know. And um, uh, one story, I know you kind of got a kick out of it because I was in a, high school gymnastics team in the Chicago suburbs and uh we were training traveling in a bus down to Lane Tech High School in downtown Chicago to compete against them in a dual meet and we were one of the better teams in the state and uh Lane Tech was pretty good but we didn't know too much about the situation we didn't know if their gym was any good we didn't know if their equipment was any good we were lucky cuz we grew up in a northwest suburbs where we had, you know, excellent facilities and coaching and equipment. So we were probably just a little bit spoiled. And as we were driving down there, somebody mentioned that, um, you know, the tumbling mats during that era, they were made of resolite, kind of like a like a springy wrestling mat. And at our high school, we actually had a double-layer resolite, so we thought we were like, you know, had luxury. And when we found out that we were going to go to this meet that had these 
ancient old horsehair mats. Literally, they're just heavy, thick, dense mats, and they're not terribly springy. In fact, they're super dead. Um, everybody on the bus was like groaning about, oh, you got to be kidding. We're going to tumble on horsehair mats. And so even though I was one of the younger guys, I had more experience than the others, and I had competed on horsehair mats before. And I told the guys on the bus, I said, you know, it's true that it's it's harder to get off the floor because they're a little dead. But the great thing about horsehair mats are they absorb your energy when you land. And I said, we can stick every landing today, and that's how we can win this meet, is by sticking the landings. That's a deduction that we can avoid because these mats are perfect for sticking landings. And all of a sudden, the issue kind of went away, and we went down there. Of course, we won the meet and things, but it was, it was to me, I think I learned a lesson that moment. I hear I was probably a sophomore in high school, but um, this was a chance to reframe the situation that yeah, this was not ideal. And you know, how many times is the sports scenario as you go into a competition ideal? Like rarely or almost never. So, you know, what you can control is your reaction to it. And uh, um, so we just reframed the issue. Instead of focusing on the challenges of, you know, dead mats, we focused on the advantages of having an absorptive mat that could stick our landings. I, you're right. I love that story. <laughs> Um, the, the earlier you talked about all this, the great things going on around us, if we can see it, and the whole concept of reframing comes from photography or, or videography, where there's a whole whole bunch of things you could look at, and great photographers are able to frame a, 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 a scene in such a way that you notice something you didn't otherwise notice, and just kind of transforms it. And I thought that's a, just a great example. Um, another uh, mental game tool that we encourage athletes to use is visualization. Did you uh, mm. did you use visualization? Oh yeah, very much so. Um, in fact, um, my uh, high school coach John Burkle, who I'm enormously indebted to, um, I often tell people this in this day and age of you know specialized coaching and private coaching and specialized clubs, um, you know, especially in Olympic sports. Um, uh, you know, I grew up and went to grade school, and it was my fourth grade PE teacher that saw that I had some ability walking around on my hands, and he introduced me to the high school gymnastics coach who invited me to come over a couple of days a week and work out with the high school team. And that gentleman had been a former great gymnast at Indiana University, but uh, he was a high school PE teacher, driver's ed teacher, and gymnastics coach. And he took me all the way to the Olympics and through public schools. And um, so I'm grateful for the kind of people that uh, that I was around. And John Burkle, I remember when I was getting sort of to that junior Olympic level and I was contending for national titles when I was 13 or 14, he handed me this book called uh, Psycho-Cybernetics. And, you know, that's, we're talking like early 70s. And uh, so I remember absorbing it all, and I, I was really focused on kind of the mental side of the game as well. And so um, uh, visualization, being able to picture myself doing my routines. Uh, I think you often talk about there's there's sort of the POV camera, you know, the one that's from your perspective, and then there's the other camera angle, which is kind of from the audience perspective. And so I would go over my routines just thousands of times in my head as to what it looked like from my perspective and also what it might look like to the audience as they watched me do it. And uh, uh, I, uh, 
I felt like that was really powerful because, you know, many times uh, it created a scenario where you often go to a competition and you, it's it's all new territory. There's new lighting. There's new, you know, dynamics and the equipment. There's a lot of variables. And yet, if you had done tons of mental rehearsal, you just had a sense of confidence that oh, I've been here before. I totally, I've done this a million times in my head, and it's just like that. So I uh, I was lucky to have an early introduction into into the the power of visualization and i have to say on a on a kind of a parallel note it's funny my my son's learning uh algebra he's in second grade and they're learning what they call singapore math now which is kind of all new for me because i i didn't grow up with that and so i've been learning online about the philosophy behind uh singapore math and it's very interesting because it's all about visualization it's it's teaching young kids to understand quantities and values in a more concrete way by visualizing shapes and uh, value bars as opposed to X's and Y's, which are very abstract. And I just got a kick out of it the other day because here I'm doing math with my eight-year-old, and visualization is the key to his success in math. And I thought, wow. it's so funny that it was the same key to my success in sports. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, you know, I, I, somebody once said the, the greater part of courage is having done something before. The second time you do it is so much easier than the first time, and you can't right. really do something before you do it for the first time. But right. visualization allows you actually to do it before you actually do it. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the, you know, when I'm when I have a, a talk, you know, I don't I don't compete in, in I never competed at anywhere close to the level you did, but I competed all through high school and, and into college. And um, now my uh, you know my performance is when I give a talk or something, and and when I have one that's a big deal, I uh, you right. know I go to bed and I, I I visualize it and I see myself uh, respond to a tough question, and it's just uh, visualization is, is really powerful. The same um, what about to me because sometimes I do yeah, per, perform, you know, presentations as well, and I, I get the same kind of nerves and uh, uh, and anxiety in, in you know in, in a positive way that that uh, that is helpful. But you're right, I, I use the same techniques in everything I do now. You know, it's, it's funny because um, the uh, I, I took a time management class many, many years ago, and, and the big idea I got from it was that there's an optimal level of stress, that mm-hmm. if you have too much stress, you're panicked. If you don't have enough stress, right. you're bored. And right. so, you know, going into a, uh, a room of coaches who are skeptical uh, and, and, and trying to win them over is like, that's like a just right, right challenge now, <laughs> just like competing used to be. I get it. Um. What about self-talk? Do you have you used that at all? Oh, tons! I find myself doing it even now. <laughs> I'm wondering if I get older, if it's going to get worse. <laughs> you know, I'm, dri- I'm driving down the road, and I find that I'm I'm actually thinking something through so intensely that I'm actually verbalizing it while I'm driving down the road. And uh, I, I don't know if that happens to you, but I, I I get so intensely focused on something that's important to me that I, I find myself talking it through almost out loud. So, But I, I uh, yes, very much so. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, I often joke that not only did we visualize a lot, but there was a lot of key phrases and there were key sort of memory um, 
sort of phrases that I could say to myself that, that would get me like a key just to get into the right, you know, mental state. And, um, you know, in my sport, I, you know, you need to be aggressive because there's, you know, there's, if you're going to make a mistake, do it by being over aggressive, not less. And, uh, you know, um, so always being aggressive, but with that sort of calm sense of cool and uh, and composed performance. And you got to always. It takes a long time to find what what works for you. You know, you you experiment a lot when you're growing up. Is you know, is a laid back attitude kind of the best thing for me, or is it more intense, uptight? Uh, don't talk to my competitors. You know what what works for me, and you know you try everything until you kind of decide that actually, turns out the thing that works the best is just to be true to who you are. <laughs> you can't kind of fake it. It take it took me a long time to get through that because you're going through your teenage years and you're trying to decide are you, are you the clown? Are you the funny guy? Are you the you know type A, you know, win at all cost guy, who are you, you know, and we all go through that and it sort of manifests itself in how you play your sport and how you, how you win and, and, and how you, you know, view success. So, um, uh, but I, I, um, uh, I know throughout my routines, it's kind of interesting because when I would get ready for a performance or even throughout the performance, um, you know, you're constantly kind of, uh, uh, looking at the next thing. I remember one time I finished a routine and my hand completely slipped off the parallel bars and I buckled, my arm buckled, and, and I got back up into position and continued. And one of the guys at the F said, that's too bad your hand slipped. And I, I was like, really? It was almost like I was thinking so far I knew that happened. Of course, I could acknowledge it, but but it was like I was thinking on the next thing because that didn't really matter what had happened. What matters is what's next, and a lot of that yeah. is you know your forward thinking kind of process. So, um, uh, yes, very important to me. You know, we we say the always most important play is the next play, and I love what you said about. Uh, it's better to make make a mistake being over aggressive than being timid, um, and you know having a mistake ritual that can help you re- recover and get back into the present. Um, how did you deal with mistakes in in pressure situations? Well, I, I you know I, like I said I'm happy that I uh, grew up in an environment where I there I was surrounded by people who were helping me find the positives in, uh, and I'll give you a quick example. Like I was, I made the Olympics as a high school senior, which was, I guess it had only happened one other time in history of U.S. gymnastics. So it was pretty rare for a kid my age to make that. And yet, you know, I was pretty good, but I had skipped a few developmental steps. So it was kind of clear when I started getting a little to a higher level that my gymnastics was, there were some voids in my development, and it was going to hurt me if I was going to get better. And I remember when I moved to the University of Oklahoma to be coached by the only, I only had two coaches in my life, and this other gentleman, Paul Zert, who was my coach and now my business partner all these years later, um, uh, he said, you know, we're going to need to redo your technique on Palma Horse completely. And it was really frustrating because I was an Olympian. I was already several-time national champion, and it was like they were going to go back and completely restructure my technique on the pommel horse. And ironically, like two and a half years later, the first major world medal I ever won was on the pommel horse. 
Hmm. And uh, so you went. I went through a long period. It'd be like a golfer just completely rebuilding their swing. It's, it's very, very terrifying because I was already pretty darn good with what I had been doing, but I realized there was going to be a limit on how far I could go if I couldn't correct my technical background there. So, um, you know, yeah, there's there's tons of you know, but if you're surrounded by people who are, are keep. Um, uh, Help keep you on track. That this this is the way to go for the long haul. This is, and you. you but you got to be surrounded by that. You know, I, I think I mentioned to you one time. We we kind of call it that sort of it's, it's like a boiling soup of encouragement all around you. Just and it's it's not being in denial. It's not being somehow Pollyannish. But it's always finding. Yes, I know I got to get better. I mean, come on. I I this I get, but. Where where, we, where can we take prog- pride, and where are we making progress, and where is this headed? And so even if I fell off the parallel bars, it maybe it was because I was working on a new move that was going to eventually pay off for me. I'll give you a quick example from the coach-gymnast-parent relationship. and I'm sure you talk about this, but I've always viewed these three factors, the three entities, the gymnast, or the let's say the athlete, the coach, and the parent as sort of three sides of the triangle. And um, there's got to be a check and balance there that that keeps the dynamics of that relationship working correctly. Um, and it's really skewed when also the coach is also the parent. And I, to be honest, I don't know how that works. Um, I, I, I know some people have done it successfully, and I'm in awe. Because I think what you really need is a triangle and a checks and balance system. And so my family, enormously supportive. Um, But if I started going and having trouble and getting inconsistent and no longer sort of top of the rankings, naturally they're like, wow, you know, how's it going? You know, they start to question the coach. Is he doing the right thing? Is he making the right choices? And um, our coach, when I first started, was like, folks, you know, they're all we're all we all matter here and i would suggest if you have questions about what i'm doing you come to me you don't bring them up in front of your child um we'll work it out everybody has a role here to play and they're all equally critical and uh one time i was you know i was already like you know national champion many times on the parallel bars and i was working on a new move and i went to a meet a college meet at oklahoma against iowa state and i tried a few new moves and i fell off parallel bars twice and it was like, are you kidding? I mean, what's going on? I mean, it was, you know, from the outside, it looked like a disaster. And even my parents, you know, who were enormously positive were saying, is, are, is this, are you okay? Is this going in the right direction? And and my coach, you know, he had to be the one to say, folks, um, stick with me here. This This will... This is the direction we need to go if we're going to go to the next level, and there will be these kind of challenges along the way. And it really won't matter that I didn't win a dual meet against Iowa State in the long run. And so that's the routine that I won the Olympics with four years later. Wow. And I had to have that journey, and I had to have that, you know, it was it was it was scary because I could have done a easier, more predictable, less risky routine, and I might have made the finals, but I would never would have won the Olympics. So what allowed me to stand out were the skills that I was trying to master back then. And But you got everybody's got to be on the same page there because they really have to um, – uh, when, right when people are starting to doubt 
that's when you got to be your strongest and say this is this is the right thing to be doing and and we all need to be on the same page here wow um, you said earlier, boiling soup of encouragement. I, I wrote that down. I want to remember that is such a positive uh, positive phrase. Couple um, couple last questions, Bart. Um, uh, you've already mentioned about being a sports parent. Um, have have you? It sounds like you haven't coached your son in any sport. Is that true? Well, it's interesting. Um, he wanted to do gymnastics, um, and. Uh, so I brought him in the gym and uh, got him all signed up and said, okay, here's the classes. And I don't coach regularly, so he said, Dad, would you coach me? And I said, okay. So in his team, there was like three groups of boys, and I worked on the high bar. And pretty soon I noticed my kid wasn't paying attention, and, you know, his dad's name's <laughs> on the building. So if he didn't think the high bar was very interesting, he'd just go run over and bounce on the trampoline. And I said, hey, excuse me, young man, you got to go back here. You know, uh, you can't – this is not free-for-all. Uh, you, if, if you're going to do this, you, you, you need to pay attention, stay with your group, and – and, and do what your coach asks. And uh, he just didn't seem to want to do it. And I really sense that he knows that we were gymnasts and he knows that we've uh, uh, succeeded in that world. And it might just be that he just doesn't want uh, to go down that road, which is perfectly fine because he loves sports. He loves soccer and basketball. He's a drummer. Uh, he's, you know, he's amazing. But I, I realized that, and there's been times when I've tried to be constructive. Let's say he's a goalie on a soccer team and dad, let's go out and kick some goals and stuff. And I, I'm trying to really, like any other parent, I am trying to sort of tread lightly there because I don't want to do drills. I don't want to, like, put him through his paces. Now, if he wants it, I will be there to give it to him, but I don't uh, I, I don't like that scenario. And it's, he's got to own it, right? And, I mean, they're just kids, so, you know, I know you got to kind of positively encourage in, in the correct directions, but, but at the end of the day, you know, to be great at something, you got to own it. And and uh, and I, he will discover that. And I just hope, I don't know whether that's going to be, you know, music or art or whether it's going to be business or, or it's going to be, you know, community service or whether it's going to be sports. I just want to provide an environment, <coughs> excuse me, where he can discover what that is for him. And if it's sports, great. If it's gymnastics, even greater. But I, that I, I, I can imagine the natural pushback against being a gymnast and the and the comparisons because his parents have 11 olympic medals between them uh that that might not be a road he wants to go down and that might be smart that he doesn't in fact you know i heard uh many years ago heard peyton manning speak and uh somebody asked him about you know who the best coach he ever had was and he immediately started talking about his father archie manning and he said my dad told me if i wanted to have him teach me to be a quarterback, he would do that, but I had to ask. And so every day Archie would come home and Peyton would say, hey, let's go out in the backyard, and, and as opposed to the the dad coming home and saying, let's get out and work on this. Uh, I, I love I love your attitude towards your, your son and uh, well, you know, just giving I, I, him I mean, the freedom. I'm happy to hear that because literally, you know, sometimes just when we're messing around, um, we come in the gym on a Sunday and, and we set it up and he does a parkour course and he dives over things and flips off of stuff. I mean, he's very, very athletic and acrobatic. And um, uh, he's exposed to it at a very early age, you know. But at the same time, I say, hey, Dylan, you want to work on your back handspring? Nope. 
and I, I, I see the immediate pushback. <laughs> so, so I don't even go there because. But if he comes over and says, "Dad, would you help me with my back handspring?" I'm 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 ready there. But I I, I get that with with the Mannings. Great. You know, I think stubbornness, uh, like so many characteristics, there's a positive and a negative aspect of stubborn we think is negative. Stubborn also means you don't give up easily, and so um, that's, right. that's it's a positive. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask you about is um, your um, just the, the kind of life you have built for yourself. <clears throat> um, you know, we've been talking all along about how sports helps us discover who we are and and trying out different things. Um, and I think some people, you know, when they get done with their competition, they're kind of lost. Um, and you have built a, a life for yourself beyond your own competing and beyond Nadia's competing of giving back, you know, the long time you've spent as a major contributor to Special Olympics and, and other organizations and, and for many years now with Positive Coaching Alliance. Uh, talk a little bit about how you how you see that as part of who you are as a person and uh, how that uh, affects your life, the, the contributions you're making to so many good causes. Well, it's interesting because, you know, in certain sports, there's, uh, based on the industry around them, there's kind of a predictable path to follow. You know, if you're a tennis player and you make it to the highest levels, there's a tour and there's an income and there's, uh, you know, sponsorships, endorsements, and there's, you know, tournaments, all that stuff. You know, football, baseball, basketball, I mean, you know all the stories of if you're the best, one of the best in the world at it, there is a business model to follow. But with Olympic sports in particular, and depending on the individual Olympic sport that you participate in, it's extremely entrepreneurial. You know, if you're an Olympic badminton player or table tennis player, um, what what is the what is the career path to follow? You kind of have to figure that out on your own because it's not like you're going to be able to make a good living at this, so you better figure out something. And, of course, when I grew up, you know, I was during the era prior to the Dream Team in 1992, so we were all strictly amateurs, so we could make no money doing what we did. Um, so, you know, I was really lucky to sort of, once I finished competing and do some gymnastic shows and exhibitions and tours and and uh, work as a professional gymnast for a little while, but knowing that that was a, a short-lived career, um, teaming up with my former coach to open a gym school because that made perfect sense to to sort of teach kids in our community gymnastics and and that got to a point where it was larger than we could handle and so we put in a, we have now 1300 students and 40 coaches it's a big program and uh then we publish a magazine that we purchased that was created back in the 50s but we purchased it in 91 and we publish a magazine about the sport and my degree is in journalism so I like the publishing and I like television. I work for ESPN as a commentator and uh, we have a small factory. We manufacture accessories and supplies, tumbling shoes, hand guards, wristbands and things like that. And and then there's kind of the the Bartonadia business which is, you know, speaking engagements and personal appearances and things like that. So we we have a multifaceted kind of business, but it's really it all grew up kind of organically around the things we're passionate about. So it was actually, even though it's very entrepreneurial, uh, it was very sort of natural how it just sort of – now, I'm enormously lucky that I, I teamed up with a mentor like my coach who who was a visionary on many levels and uh, not only helped me become a champion gymnast, but he's also 
a great visionary for what we can do with our uh, accomplishments. And um, so we've built a business around what we care about and what we love. So it means now, in fact, we're working with people that we know and love. It's like a family business. We have 50 employees total with our other companies, but the uh, you know all these people are coaches and friends and former gymnasts and teammates. I mean, it's it's a family of people, and so it's a great pleasure to uh, you know to to have grown this thing with with like-minded people. So um, you know I'm uh, I see it more and more each day, whether it's in my nonprofit work. You know, we work for Special Olympics and as volunteers and. We have a program which we're pioneering here called Autism Moves, which is a movement education based on the principles of gymnastics for children with autism. And we teach 110 kids each week who come to our gym for free uh, from public schools. Uh, we teach them gymnastics-based obstacle courses for children with autism. And we're hearing anecdotally from teachers incredible stories of how these kids are flourishing, not only because of the physical movement, but they're actually doing better cognitively in school as a result of the experiences they're having here. So we're, we're, we're having a lot of fun on a lot of levels. But, you know, the real joy of it is we've surrounded ourselves with people that we love to be with and love to work with. So, you know, every day it's just a joy to be to be in this environment Bart, I uh, I just admire you so much, uh, both from your uh, performing days and the, the like I say the life you've built for yourself and the contributions. And uh, want to thank you. This is uh, this interview has just been filled with uh, gems that are the coaches, parents, and athletes who listen to it will benefit from. And I also want to thank you for your early and continuing support of the Positive Coaching Alliance movement. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Jim. I'm one of your biggest fans, and so, uh, you know, anytime I can help, uh, please don't hesitate to call. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.